Welcome to Review the Future, the podcast that takes an in-depth look at the impact of technology on culture. I'm Ted Cover. I'm John Perry. And today we're asking the question, does life have meaning in a world without work? With us today is our first ever repeat guest. Uh, John Danaher is a lecturer at the University of Ireland who writes about the philosophy of technology, ethics, and law. John, welcome back to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me again, and it's uh, an honor to be your first repeat guest. I think I was also your first guest, so two firsts. Yes, you are now important in the very short history of Review the Future. So uh, you're working on a paper that is about a topic that has been very interesting to us for a while now, which is this issue of technological unemployment. But you're not asking necessarily the usual questions in this paper. Maybe you want to just describe what the focus of the paper is. Yeah, sure. So I guess a lot of the debate to this point has been about whether there will be technological unemployment, whether this is something that's going to happen. Uh, this seems to be the focus of books like uh, Brynjolfsson and McAfee's The Second Machine Age and Martin Ford. And then once writers establish that maybe it's going to happen, they look at the social implications. And a lot of the focus to this point has been on the distributional problems created by the lack of employment, the fact that more income will be going to owners of capital, owners of machines. This will exacerbate income inequality, and we need to rectify that somehow. And so a lot of the focus then has been on solutions to that distributional problem like the basic income guarantee. I'm focusing on the related and obvious other implication of technological unemployment, which is what will people do once they're no longer working? Will life be better or worse for them in a world without work? So for the sake of this podcast, we're going to take for granted that technological unemployment is happening in a future that we're imagining and that we've somehow solved the distributionary problem well enough that people aren't, you know, completely struggling and starving. Is that correct? Yeah, I, you need to bracket those two issues before you can, I think, meaningfully address the question of whether life will be worthwhile or fulfilling in a world without work. Because obviously, if, if people are suffering from huge economic hardship because they're no longer working, life probably won't be very good for them. So it's a separate question about whether life would be good for them if they still have access to income and they have abundance. If they live in a world of abundance, but they're not working, will life be meaningful for them? That's the topic that I'm focusing on, that I'm interested in. Right. And it was really interesting for me to read this paper because you approach this from a, a very analytical, philosophical point of view. But this question is one that John and I have been wrestling with from a very different perspective, from the perspective of like an individual character that we were writing for, for some time now. And it, it's really compelling to me uh, thinking about uh, once you solve the issue of having enough food to eat and living a comfortable life, you know, how does a person interface with these strong culturally received messages that one can only achieve meaning and dignity through work? I mean, at least here in the States, that's a very common, I think, refrain. Yeah, I, I think there's an interesting history to that whole issue as well, which might be worth reflecting on for a moment. The anti-work movement within the political left, within you know, the anti-capitalist and labor movement, was fairly prominent in the late 1800s and early 1900s. Marx's son-in-law, a guy called Paul Lafargue, wrote a famous book called The Right to be Lazy in the late 1800s, which was defending this anti-work position. And it was taken up by the labor movement in Europe and in the US in the early 1900s. But post-war, like after the Depression and post-World War II, uh, there seemed to be a shift in the kind of ethos and perspective of the labor movement. And they kind of latched on to the idea that 
work was dignifying and there was some dignity associated with work. If you're interested, you can see this traced out in some of the leading kind of UN international covenants on, on human rights, where they specifically single out a right to work as being something that it confers dignity on the human subject. Even though there was a prominent strain within the, the labor movement, which was opposed to the idea of work in the early the part of the 20th century. Well, and it seems that even the people that are writing about technological unemployment today, like Brynjolfsson and McAfee, for example, many of them are still pushing this idea that we need work as a means of human dignity. I believe they like to quote Voltaire. What's that quote that uh, work saves us from three evils? Yeah, no. boredom, vice, and need. Those are the three. I just Googled it. Right. Yeah, board advice and idea. Yeah. We talked about this on a previous podcast. We think that's pretty um, easily problematizable. I mean, certainly need and boredom can be solved other ways. And vice is a kind of difficult concept to wrap your head around anyway. So, uh, well, just maybe one comment on that on vice. This is one of the interesting things within the kind of the left wing critique, which is that the work ethic has been you know, valorized and glorified in such a way that anyone who's not working is deemed to be a vicious and kind of malignant cancer on society. And there's a lot of stigmatization of non-work. That, that might be particularly true in more capitalistic societies like the US. Uh, so like what Brynjolfsson and McAfee are latching on to there is the whole culture of the work ethic and the value of the work ethic. Well, and historically, you can see that having a lot of practical value uh, in a world Right, where Malthusian stuff needs to world. get done for yeah. everyone to survive and, and people need to work together to make sure that there's enough food for winter and so on. I guess this equation maybe changes in a world where we have uh, machines doing a lot of our labor. But maybe we should back up a bit because I feel like we're getting really ahead of the, the argument. Should we start by just defining what we even mean by work? I know that that's a, a place you start in the paper. Yeah, and it's actually a instantly problematic I think if you read a lot of the literature on this, people don't define work because it's, it's assumed that it's a, a fairly obvious phenomenon. Everybody has some familiarity with work and work culture. So maybe it is too obvious to define, but you know, given that I'm trained as an analytical philosopher, I like to define terms and figure out if we can be reasonably precise about what we're, what we're concerned with. And there are two problems with any definition of, of work. One is that it, there's a danger that the definition will be over or under-inclusive, that it'll exclude some things that you would like to include or that it'll include too many things. And the other problem with the definition of work, at least when you're investigating whether a world without work is a good or bad thing, is that your definition can be value-laden. So it can, it can assume automatically that work is a bad thing or a good thing. So I have some examples of that in the, in the paper that I wrote, just uh, maybe two. One is a Bob Black, he's a famous anarchist and anti-work campaigner who defined all forms of work as, a, as being forced labor. <laughs> and the, the difficulty with that definition is if you define it as being forced labor, like the term forced is uh, an, an evaluative term or it's value-laden term. So it kind of automatically carries with it the connotation that work is a bad thing and we'd be better off without it. Right. It's also sort of confusing from an uh, inclusivity point of view, right? Because it seems to exclude like entrepreneurial effort. It excludes self-chosen forms of work or people right. who work not for any particular need or under the control of another person. Right. And the, the other famous definition that I refer to in the, in the paper is Bertrand Russell's definition of work. So Russell was one of these early anti-work campaigners too. He wrote a famous essay about it called In Praise of Idleness, uh, which was part of a collection, a famous collection of essays as well that was published in the early 1920s. And he defined work uh, in the following way. He said, work is of two kinds. First, altering the position of matter at or near the Earth's surface relatively to other such matter. 
second, telling other people to do so. The first kind is unpleasant and ill-paid. The second is pleasant and highly paid. The second kind is capable of indefinite extension. They're not only those who give orders, but those who give advice as to what orders should be given. So a lot of people like this quote because it's, it's kind of amusing, I guess, and it um, pokes fun at managerial or consultative forms of work. But again, it suffers from that problem of initially over-inclusivity because what he's appealing to in the first part of the definition is essentially a, a definition of work that comes from the physical sciences as a work as a movement of an object relative to the Earth's surface. And in, and in the second part, he has a kind of a narrow conception of work as being just managerial and giving orders. And he assumes that the first kind of work, which is like physical hard labor, I guess, is always unpleasant, and that the other kind of work is always parasitic upon uh, physical work. Yeah, that definition seems both too broad and too specific at the same time. Yeah. Right, because me picking up my computer and walking into the other room is moving matter around, right? And that's not work. But so much of managerial effort is a lot more than advising or giving orders as well. Yeah, so it can be like, creative as well in other ways, right. not just parasitic. I mean, yeah. I mean, that, that's, again, that kind of ties into the whole classic Marxist uh, narrative. He's coming from a particular ideological position pretty strongly with that definition. But I, I like your definition that you give in the paper, actually. Why don't you share that? Because I think it's a lot cleaner than the ones you just gave. I define work as the performance of an actor's skill, a kind of a cognitive, emotional, or physical skill, in return for economic reward, or in the ultimate hope of receiving some such award. Or reward, sorry. Right, uh, which I like that definition because it includes speculative work and uh, things like internships. I think you mentioned that specifically, which clearly feel like work to us. Yeah, it includes forms of unpaid employment and entrepreneurship within that definition. Like, it, the ultimate kind of key idea, anyway, in that definition is the link to some sort, some sort of economic reward. I'm also not too specific about the type of economic reward. It could be like a, a paycheck or a salary, but it could be uh, some other type of good that can be traded or commodified and exchanged on the market in some way. I think it's important to think of it as, you know, it, it's at least some kind of extrinsic uh, reward, right? That you're that you're aiming for, I think? It's yes, yes. That, no, that's fair. It, it's, t it's tied to tradability on an economic market of some kind. Because that's, that's what I think separates it from challenging activities that people engage in that, you know, are sometimes called work, sometimes not called work, but that share a lot of qualities with work, but that are done more for intrinsically motivating reasons because they feel good to do, but not, you know, because you're trying to get ahead in the market or in the external world in some fashion. Yeah, that, that's good. I, I, mean, I think this is a huge issue as well, because I've written lots of pieces about work and published them in various venues online. And I'm repeatedly challenged on the idea that, well, actually, everything we do is work, and there are lots of types of work that are intrinsically valuable and motivating. Part of the problem there is that people are relying on that over-inclusive definition of work. And uh, also, I wouldn't deny that there might be intrinsic pleasures associated with work, as I've defined it. Uh, I've just tried to have a fairly clean and non-value-laden definition that seems to cover the phenomenon that we're interested in this debate. Well, and it intuitively seems that there are both intrinsic and extrinsic values to most work, but that all the work can be seen to have this extrinsic economic reward. Or at least for this podcast, when yeah, we say work. I mean, yeah. just intuitively speaking, I'm not <laughs> yeah. saying in all yeah. in all cases everywhere, but that does that feels intuitively right, and I'm not immediately coming to mind with uh, huge exceptions to that. So now that we've got a definition in hand of work, John, why don't you lay out for us the current state of the technological unemployment argument 
and what the potential future we might be facing uh, in a world of automation looks like. Yeah, so I, I don't want to reiterate the, all the technological unemployment ar- uh, arguments since that'll be familiar to the listeners to this podcast and you have other past podcasts that go into it in more detail. I just think it's worth noting the types of technologies that seem to be at the forefront of this new second machine age, as Olson and McAfee call it, which are really advances in uh, artificial intelligence and, and robotics uh, tied to you know, the revolution in information technology. And I think there are a couple of interesting parts of that technological trend that are worth noting that do become relevant later on when we will end up discussing the value of non-work. One is just the general speed and pace of growth in those kinds of technologies and the fact that you know, it's very difficult for humans to be retrained and upskilled to keep pace with these technologies. At least that's what we expect to be more and more true in the future. And the other thing that is worth mentioning is the phenomenon of winner-takes-all markets where due to the globalized nature of information technology and the globalized nature of uh, distributive networks for distributing goods and services, it's possible now for very few people to work to take complete control over an individual market. There are famous examples of this that are often put forward would be things like Amazon, which I guess now dominates retail uh, worldwide, and Facebook or Google, which you know, dominate particular industries and services and employ relatively fewer people than uh, were historically the case uh, in you know, other kind of classic capitalist uh, corporations in the early or mid-20th century. Right. So these two issues are two compelling answers to the obvious question people always ask, which is, you know, if machines are going to automate some jobs, won't people just find new jobs? And doesn't that cycle just repeat as history moves forward? But of course, if the pace of change is too fast, then people can't move on to the next job quickly enough because then that new job is automated. And uh, similarly, if we have these winner-take-all markets, there may be jobs for some people, but other people will be very lucrative jobs for very few people in that world, basically. Uh, Uh, So like any any new opportunities that are opened up will tend to be captured by relatively few people. A smaller proportional percentage of the population will capture those markets. So you alluded to earlier the fact that there's sort of a tradition of anti-work arguments and the way that those anti-work arguments actually change uh, in a world where we assume machines might be doing all the tasks normally performed by humans. Do you want to discuss that bit of your paper? Like, why do the anti-work arguments become so much stronger if machines are doing the labor? Yeah, sure. I I mean, I can't jump maybe directly to that initially. It's worth setting out what the typical anti-work arguments are first, and then why they become more persuasive in an age of technological unemployment. I would divide anti-work arguments into two main categories. One, what I call work is bad arguments, just the claim that the kinds of skills or activities we engage in for economic reward are unpleasant or uh, bad for us in various ways. And then opportunity cost arguments, which even if work is good for us in some ways, non-work would be better all things considered. And those are just two very general families of arguments, and there are lots of more specific arguments within those two general families, which you would have to, you need to flesh out and, and consider in some detail. I'll mention just the first type of like work is bad argument, which would be what I would call contingent arguments, which are based on the particular features of particular forms of work. Uh, so a lot of people point to forms of work that are degrading and humiliating you know, maybe certain kinds of cleaning work or care work are deemed to be degrading and humiliating in various ways. Right. People will talk about uh, health effects associated with 
certain forms of work, in particular mental illness, uh, depression, suicide, and those kinds of things. There, there's certain professions that are renowned for their bad effects on on the employees or workers within those industries, like legal work, which I get, you know, I come from a, a legal background, so I'm familiar with some of the statistics in that debate. Then there are physical risks associated with various forms of work. You could point in particular to probably some of the more uh, controversial manifestations of transnational labor, like sweatshops, the you know, very unpleasant working conditions, lots of uh, physical risks, risks, again, high suicide rates in places like Foxconn. Although I'm aware that there is some controversy about whether the suicide rate in Foxconn is all that high, given the sheer number of people that live there. You know, people, some people argue that it's actually not out of keeping with the, the general occurrence of, of suicide within the population as a whole. You can also point to things then like bullying, intimidation, sexual harassment, all these things that are associated with uh, different forms of work. And you can single them out then as just, you know, work is a terrible thing. And in the paper, I have a quote as well from this guy, Bob Black, who I mentioned earlier on, who sums up maybe the most extreme version of this opinion, who says work is the source of nearly all the misery in the world. Almost any evil you'd care to name comes from working or from living in a world designed for work. In order to stop suffering, we have to stop working. So like I, I like the, the black thing, but I feel like the part of it that's doing a lot of work is when he says a world designed for work. That expands the statement into being true in a way that the statement is not true without that clause, I feel like, in the sense that there's all sorts of problems associated with the world that we have that's designed for work. And those problems taken uh, on, on the whole are like the critique of capitalism you know they're like they're huge uh we couldn't possibly cover all of them now and i won't try but um it's a harder that just all work is bad some work is clearly bad right you can pull out these examples but so there's yeah. so much evidence that some work is good that it seems like unless you include that larger capitalist critique it's it's hard for me to sort of track this argument yeah and I, I probably might go to that larger capitalist critique in a moment but i think you're right these kinds of of argument that point to particular properties of of particular forms of work, they're contingent on you know, current empirical reality. Right. And there's no reason to think that that reality couldn't change in some ways, or that there's no reason to think that this is true of all forms of work. So people who are pro-work will say, well, that might be true that you know, cleaning toilets for a living isn't the most dignified form of labor, but that's only one form of labor among many. And we, could, we can embrace other types of labor. And in fact, this is one way in which people who are kind of pro-work and also believe in technological unemployment that can maintain their pro-work position because they can say, well, automating technologies could actually free us up uh, from these degrading forms of work and allow us to work in more enlightening and uplifting industries or, or right. types of career. Right. I hear right. that argument a lot. I think that's interesting because I think that also kind of makes a, a funny assumption in that it's not at all clear that the type of work that's being automated is the bad stuff. Uh, yes, that, right? that is always an issue as well. <laughs> I mean, fact, it's, it's almost random which types of work are being automated. More has to do with the capabilities of the technology in question and far less to do with our judgments of which work is good. No, that's, that's true. And it's not just the types of work. It's also um, you know, how resistant a particular industry is to, or resilient an industry is to automation for right. reg regulatory reasons or whatever. Right, right, right. Yeah. So there's that argument based on contingent features. And there's a second argument, which is more tied to like the reality of work in the contemporary capitalistic world, which is something that seems to be true of all forms of work in that world, which is that it is, you know, we're not exactly slaves and we're not physically forced or obliged to work, but there are very strong 
pressures on us to work if we want to survive or get ahead. So work in the the modern capitalistic society and in most uh, countries in the world is effectively compulsory in in nature. Um, Now, people will resist that and say, well, we have... We do have welfare protections and the welfare state, so we're not compelled to work. But actually, most forms of welfare are tied to one's capacity and willingness to work. Yeah, and here so, in the States, uh, the welfare state is not uh, terribly comprehensive. I mean, it's it's something of a floor, but it's hardly um, something that you can just say, oh, I'm not going to work. I'm just going to choose to live off of uh, you know disability and and. Uh, food stamps it's it, it you wouldn't make it well you have the option but it's not a great one it's, it's i mean i'm not sure that yeah. it's a survival level option here I've, it's it, it, it maybe for some folks it depends on what you qualify for because it's sort of a complicated mess but yeah i mean some people might make this argument in europe but even in, in europe most forms of welfare are still tied to your willingness to work and your capacity to work so you either have to prove that you're actively seeking work to receive welfare payments, right. and oftentimes you have to undergo obligatory training programs and attend um, training programs if you want to receive uh, welfare, or else you have to prove that you're incapacitated, you're too old, or you're um, disabled in some way that you can't work. So, is it, even though in countries where there's a more robust welfare protection, you're you're still situated within this this culture that that values work and insists upon work unless there's no other alternative for you. Which again, I think it's it's easy to see why this attitude persists given our our recent past being one of, you know, struggling just to survive and to support our massively growing population. You know, pretty much since the agricultural revolution, you know, we've people have arguably needed to do their part to keep society going. But I guess that all falls into question when you have machines doing all the labor that sort of agreement that society has that everybody's going to pull their own weight for the the good of the group seems to be a lot weaker. Yeah, so this is the kind of argument I make then in in the paper. So if you recognize that seemingly compulsory nature of work in in modern society, I think there are two arguments you can make for saying that that's a bad thing. One is based on the notion of egalitarian justice, and the other is based on how this undermines our freedom and, uh, and autonomy. So within like dominant liberal egalitarian theories of justice, there's this notion that the state should be neutral with respect to particular citizens' conceptions of the good life or what is worth doing with their lives or how they should spend their lives. The state should try and accommodate as many uh, diverse ways of living as possible. But um, some people would argue, well, it doesn't accommodate one particular conception of of the good life, which is the life that includes non-work. So we have an imperfect system of egalitarian justice. Now, the typical response there is, well, we can't tolerate non-work, the, this kind of lazy lifestyle that people refer to, although you know, laziness is maybe a pejorative that you want to avoid, so I'll just talk about non-work for the time being. Um, so we can't tolerate that non-working life because we need people to work and contribute to you know, tax money to pay for social goods and services that make us all better off. And, and I mean, this is a very strong point of view as well in people who are still in, in favor of the, the work ethic. But it seems to me that that claim that we can't possibly tolerate this way of living makes less sense in a world where we're heading towards a more complete automation of productive forms of labor. Um, so that, that's kind of the main, one of the main arguments in the paper is that this style of argument becomes more persuasive in an age of tech unemployment. And the same goes for claims about how work undermines our freedom. So again, this is a popular argument amongst anti-work campaigners 
that work dominates our time, it kind of it infiltrates all aspects of our lives, particularly nowadays with the 24-7 marketplace and information technology that may, means you are accessible and capable of being uh, pinged or targeted by that market at all times of the day. Work dominates our time, so it reduces our freedom. It also um, forces us to do things that we may not otherwise want to do just purely to survive, uh, to you know, attain the basic necessities of living. Now, people will justify those, those features of work because you know, they might even accept that it does dominate our time and that it is, in a sense, forcing us to do things that we don't want to do. But it's justified because it enables us to gain access to greater goods, you know, the economic welfare argument that by contributing to the market, we increase the social pie and increase what's available to everyone else. But again, that argument seems less persuasive in an, an age when we're heading towards full automation and there's less uh, need for human labor to uh, contribute to economic productivity. In fact, one of the points I, I make is that to insist upon people working in such an age seems almost cruel or like a form of torture. You know, to insist that they constantly upskill themselves or retrain themselves and re-educate themselves to re-enter an increasingly small market for labor uh, seems even more coercive and more exploitative than current forms of labor might seem to people. Well, unless, I mean, I guess the counter argument could be that if you really believe that the market is essentially democratic indirectly by means of, you know, the sort of the wisdom of the crowd that people are all through the market showing what they value and that that kind of dictates the type of work that people have to do. If we believe that those forces are distributed and not coming from a small minority, then, you know, you could argue that, I guess I'm, not, I'm having trouble framing this. I think I can make sense of what you're saying so far <laughs> as if you think the market and, and what's valued by the market represents um, the general will or the wishes of yes. everybody, then you might say it's still a good thing for us to work because in that sense, we'll be contributing to things that we all value anyway. It seems to me that that argument has to butt up against the mounting evidence that we're, we're living in an increasingly unequal uh, world. You know, the kinds of arguments put forward by people like Piketty in his book, Capital in the 21st Century. If all the wealth is going to a smaller percentage of the population, and they ultimately control what gets valued in the marketplace. That, that, that kind of view becomes less persuasive. The market is no longer representative of the general set of preferences or values in society. There's also just pretty significant problematic stuff around the concept that the market fully represents the values of society because it has its own limitations. The technology of the marketplace itself, we monetize things that are scarce. We've talked about that a lot on this podcast and that has its own biases. Um, so to some extent, yeah, I mean, people are voting with their dollars, but that structure is not uh, in any way perfect. So there's always going to be externalities that don't get priced and that don't get valued. Yeah. I mean, the classic debate about environmental damage in, in economies, that that's not something sure, that's, that's actually just one costed or factored in because right. it's a, you socialize those costs, but yeah, the market kind of privatized certain costs within the factory floor, let's say, or within the factory building, but costs downstream by polluting a river next to a factory or whatever, they're not borne by the factory itself. So it's an example of a market failure. So yeah, I mean, there's a huge literature about those in, in economics. Right. And then I guess the last possible counter argument that you could still have is if you're worried about general progress and innovation. And again, I think it's 
still easy to problematize the market, but you might believe that we need something like our market system to keep pushing innovation forward. Uh, and that simply letting people opt out is possibly going to slow down progress. Although I think you could make the opposite argument as well. But that seems to be like a, a, a significant thing to consider when we're trying to design our society either with work or without work or with the option is, you know, what's going to spur the kinds of innovations that we want in order to move forward. Yeah, and that's where this the second category of argument that I mentioned, that the opportunity cost arguments would uh, would come into play because the opportunity cost argument is that, well, even if there are some benefits to, to work, you know, non-work is a better world for us all because it will and free us up to do things that we try we find more valuable or it will free us up to do things that are truly more innovative and worthwhile for society. So this was famously the view of somebody like Bertrand Russell in, in his paper in Praise of Idleness. He said that the, the leisure class, if you examine it historically, were responsible for all the gains for civilization, you know, reforms in politics and uh, scientific discovery and technological discovery. If, if you examine it, it was it, almost always attributable to the leisure class. Now, that might, that might not be true. Let's just be clear about that. Um, but, I mean, there's some or truth it might be it. somewhat over-determined, right? I mean, if you only let he, the leisure yeah, class into the generous. political system, then, of course, they're going to produce all of the political reforms. <laughs> yeah, they were benefit, beneficiaries of a system that they created to pay yeah, for themselves. Right. But th- th- that's a view that's out there. Sure. Again, and that, that's within that opportunity cost framework that, again, non-work will be better for us, all things considered. Right, right. The part of it that's relevant, I think, is well taken, which is that if you're not out there breaking your back all day, you have time to think and dream and come up with new things. Yeah. Yeah. So that might be a response to John's last point about whether the market will drive innovation. Well, if non-work is better and frees us up to be more creative and more innovative, maybe it'll, it'll be a better thing, better for us all things considered. Right. The idea that possibly a ton of people are just squandering their potential doing really dull jobs right now. Right. Or, or, applying themselves to tasks that aren't the thing that they're naturally the best at or and and again people tend to be more successful at things that they naturally enjoy doing and are drawn to and so perhaps we don't have through the market the most efficient distribution of people's talents uh so Mm -hmm. so i do think that's a compelling argument i don't know how you would begin to determine who was correct here yeah i mean i have one kind of methodology for doing this which is to think about my problem with those opportunity cost arguments is it seems to me that they're under-theorized. They, they, they assume too easily that when we're free from work, we'll do things that will make our lives better. But they don't really think about, well, what is it really that makes our lives better and more meaningful and more fulfilling? And I guess that's probably the main contribution that I'm trying to make to this debate is to think a bit more seriously about what makes life meaningful and fulfilling. So within the paper, I identify four different leading theories in philosophy of, of what makes a life meaningful and fulfilling. Um, there are simple subjectivist theories which say life is meaningful and fulfilling for us, provided that we attain a certain kind of subjective state of satisfaction or preference, uh, fulfillment, you know, conscious well-being. The life feels good to us. It feels worthwhile to us. That's one theory. Then there are objectivist theories which say, well, life is good and fulfilling for us if we achieve certain objectively good ends, like we, you know, we end world hunger or we make great scientific discoveries or produce great works of art. Uh, this is a classic phrase like in philosophy that uh, the good, the true, and the beautiful are the three things that make life worthwhile. So you know, for free from work, we'd be free to pursue the good, the true, 
and the beautiful, that might be one position you make. Uh, so, and then there are two other sorts of theories that are combine both subjective and objective conditions. So what makes life meaningful is that we attain a certain state of conscious well-being by performing actions with objectively good ends. That's a, a fitting fulfillment theory, for example. That's another famous theory. Or if we just have an aim that we want, a goal that we want to achieve, and we achieve that through our own actions, and we experience the achievement of that goal through our own actions. That's an aim-achievement theory of meaning. Hmm. So there, there was four broad theories of meaning. So the question then becomes, does, does a world without work better enable us to satisfy the conditions of these different theories of meaning? So one source of meaning is just how you feel, right? That's the su subjectivist angle. You know, do, do people feel good about what they're doing? And then you, the other major category here is the more objectivist thing, which has a, a few different flavors that you just gave. But, you know, what is the state of the world? What is the state of other people? How are we affecting the world? Is that a, is that a fair yeah, beginning I mean, point? If you want to simplify it again, it's just there are purely subjectivist theories, purely objectivist theories, and then theories that mix subjective and objective components. Now, I have a problem with the objectivist theories, I think, because if we're really going to take seriously as a premise that through technology, we're going to solve many of our problems, and if you assume that we're going to be relatively successful at automating a lot of the work that people do, and also if we solve our distributionary problem and get people the things they need to survive, if we can create a world of abundance, if we assume all of that is possible, then that is the better world that you would be striving for in these objectivist theories. Then, you know, what else is really left to do but to try to feel good? In other words, it seems silly to say that a meaningful life is one that is making the world better if we assume utopia, essentially, that we've already made the world better. Right, right. Those ideas are assuming no endpoint to how good you can make things. But maybe there is a way to make things objectively good enough, essentially. Right. It seems like they might yeah. run out of steam, essentially. You know, you solve world hunger. Okay, what's next? You solve, you cure cancer. Okay, what's next? Um, whereas the subjective feeling doesn't have the same problem of, of potentially running out of gas. I mean, you can always feel great and perhaps, you know, you can feel better than we've ever felt before using technology. Yeah. So I, I guess I would maybe push back against that somewhat. Maybe you're, you have a problem with purely objectivist theories where it's just all about achieving good ends. But I don't, would you embrace a purely subjectivist theory? So most philosophers would object to a purely subjectivist theory because they think there are obvious counterexamples that seem to reduce this idea to the absurd. I'll just mention probably the most famous counterexample of all, which has to do with the famous myth of Sisyphus. But this is a story from Greek mythology, but Sisyphus being condemned by the gods to roll a boulder up the hill perpetually. And then once he gets to the top of the hill, it automatically goes, rolls back down and he has to start the process again. So he just repeats this on an endless cycle. So some people would say, well, imagine Sisyphus is really happy about, with this task. And you know, he feels uh, an, an immense state of pleasure every time he gets to the top of the hill. And then when the boulder rolls back down, his memory is reset. So he experiences it again as being an incredibly rewarding and fulfilling task, again, subjectively. Is he living a meaningful life? Most philosophers would say that he isn't living a, a meaningful life. Um, that doesn't see, that doesn't seem to epitomize what we mean by a fulfilling an exi existence. So they would reject kind of purely subjectivist theories of meaning. See, I 
I don't like that example because I feel like that's designed to make you kind of recoil because it, from well, if it's an inhuman uh, experience, your mind is being erased at the end the, of every The mind task. erasing is the part that's <laughs> creepy. If you're standing as an outside observer watching this guy play the ball rolling game uh, and he keeps getting reset back to level one every time, I think that's utterly sort of disturbing. But I think, okay, you know... Well, well, let's remove the mind erasing condition from it. If, if he knows that he's doing it over and over again, but still see, feels incredibly rewarded by that experience, would that be sufficient? This doesn't then? strike me as that different from many people's real lives. Well, hold, well, hold on, hold on. <laughs> Let, well, let's, uh, let's set that aside for a second, but fair enough. But I, I, I guess, it, to me, this, this does sound essentially like a game. He's doing it for its intrinsic value. He's, you know... He apparently feels great satisfaction when he does it's, it. It's so. a, perhaps, I don't know if it's challenging. I think it sounds not very challenging. I, I think people need challenge to feel uh, good, at least with our current subjective states of mind now. I mean, Seems I, like I getting would, the boulder up the mountain would be sufficiently challenging. Right. But then maybe once he succeeds once, he has a higher mountain or he has a di- different sort of task with different obstacles. I feel like couldn't, if to me, this seems like a game and couldn't this just be a better designed game? And wouldn't that make us feel less bad about this outcome? Okay, so this is quite interesting um, because well, let's kind of set to the side one in the issue of whether it's difficult and challenging enough. We might come back to that later because um, I have an argument as well about whether non-work would be sufficiently difficult to be satisfying for us. But let's just focus on purely on the idea that this is like a game because this is something I, I wanted to do discuss with you anyway, because you raised this in a previous podcast. I think it was the podcast on the 10, 10 things that science fiction gets wrong about the future. This notion of the, the primacy of the real, um, that people feel like they um, have to act in the real world to have, have meaning. So like Sisyphus's existence seems like a game. And maybe actually one thing that we could do in a non-work world in, in the future is not really worry about how our actions have experiences in, in the real world at all, but um, create, you know, incredibly rich and rewarding virtual reality environments. And we could live out, you know, an endless variation on different kinds of activities and, and do things that seem to us to be really valuable and meaningful. But we're doing them all in, in a virtual reality world. Would that be sufficient to provide us with meaning and fulfillment? Because if it is, then again, there's a good argument for embracing the kinds of technological revolution that enable technological unemployment. But if there isn't, and if those technologies can feed into other parts of our lives, then we might be concerned about meaning in a non-work world, or a post-work world, let's say. Uh, well, it's... My intuition is that game-like activities may be the best chance that we have of finding meaning in a world where everything useful that you could contribute has already been contributed by machines. Yeah, so like we've handed over solving... Uh, problems of, of basic moral need, like uh, you know, food distribution, healthcare. We've, we've handed that over to machines. And actually, the machines are doing all the scientific work as well, because it's increasingly true that science is a big data enterprise, and it's not really up, uh, feasible for any individual human or even team of humans to um, make significant scientific discoveries without being aided by a machine and actually just leaving it to the machines themselves will be faster and more efficient and more productive anyway. So we've handed all that over to them. So we're left with this realm of games in effect. Is that sort of accurate well, reflection of your view? Well, so th- there's definitely like at least two different things here. So let's start with, uh, p- part of my view is, is coming a little bit from, there's a philosopher uh, named Bernard Suits and his definition of 
game is the one that I find the most useful. And he defines a game roughly as a, a voluntary attempt to overcome unnecessary obstacles. And he yeah, actually yeah. draws this connection to a, a future utopia and to a world without scarcity. And he is suggesting essentially in his book that the, the necessary obstacles are gone, right? The machines are handling the necessary obstacles. So what's left? There's only unnecessary obstacles that we create for ourselves. And people, I don't think, are very happy when they don't have challenges to deal with. And so, I mean, I, I guess the question is, where does meaning come from? And I think... It's, it's, it seems to me like you, you have maybe a, what I previously described as this kind of aim achievement theory of meaning. That what makes our lives meaning is that we have some kind of goal that we want to achieve and we achieve it through our actions. But it doesn't really matter too much what that goal is. So with Suits' definition of, of a game as... It's triumphing over unnecessary obstacles or something like that. That's basically it, isn't it? Yeah. Or am I? Well, it's, yeah. it's the one extra part is that it has to be voluntary, right? You can't be forced into it. Yeah. Okay. And so, what what's important for the future is that we come up with new obstacles and things that will challenge and excite us as as best we can, and we will find meaning through overcoming these obstacles. But it doesn't really matter if these obstacles are, as I defined it earlier, objectively good or worthwhile. We're not, we're not concerned anymore with um, you know, the good and, and the true, which I was part of the, you know, the three definitions, of, or three component definition well, of meaning that I said uh, well, presented I, earlier, the good, the true, and the beautiful. Well, I think we're concerned that they're good and that we're, we, we need to make sure that they're not destructive, right? People can't be allowed to have my goal for my game is to uh, destroy all the other people and make them feel suffering. Like, obviously, there would be not allowable goals, Right. So yeah. there is, you know, some room to define what is a good aim or an acceptable aim and what isn't. Well, I think it seems to me that it would have to be the goal for you, because it's an unnecessary obstacle, it would have to be a, just a morally neutral goal or aim, something that doesn't do any harm, but also doesn't do any great moral good or doesn't benefit other people in any way. Because we're, we're imagining that benefiting other people, that's handed it's, over to... Right, it's basically outside technology. of the realm of what you can do at this point, yeah. So that's interesting. So you're kind of carving that that middle and where where you have a games where it's just these kind of new, neutral, go, morally neutral goals, but they are exciting and challenging to us and are, are rewarding to us, and that um, provides us with with meaning. And and again, I think in a world where we have the kinds of technological advance that make widespread technological unemployment possible, it's it's definitely you know, a high probability that we could realize that kind of of world where it's just endlessly fascinating and rewarding games. And that might be a good reason to embrace this anti-work argument or this anti-work position. Well, also, where, It makes that possible. Well, where does like, social interaction enter into this, right? Because that seems to be somewhat at the overlap between the subjective and the objective, right? I mean, if you are engaging in these activities as a group with other people, you're doing so because you feel good, but you also are contributing to the happiness of other people. Yeah, okay, you could you could be contributing to their happiness within the particular world of the game, so to speak. But it, yeah, it's a, mu a mutually rewarding activity or it's a joint enterprise, sure. But I, I guess where we end up is where you, you mentioned the concept of the primacy of the real, which is a term that we used. We were at the time critiquing uh, science fiction that, you know, posits these incredibly amazing virtual reality worlds that are every bit as good as real reality and yet still come down on the side of saying real reality is 
somehow better. Even right. Though- often by having the characters have like an ineffable sense of, but it's just not real whenever they're in there. Right. Like in a kind of, that's like yeah. sort of the cheesy, the cheesy way that this sometimes gets shown. Right. But the way that's relevant here is if we're just engaging in virtual game playing and overcoming obstacles uh, in a virtual space, or even if it's not in a virtual space, if it's just sort of inconsequential to the larger universe, right? Uh, yeah, I think, I mean, it, it doesn't matter so much whether you're plugged into some VR headset or whatever. It's, it's that you've constructed a world which, yeah, is inconsequential to the larger realm of, of value in the universe, so to speak. It's, 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 a, it's a self-constructed enterprise. I mean, to me, it's just very hard to say what is real and what isn't. It just seems kind of arbitrary at the point that, well, I mean, again, in the original thought experiment, if we have virtual reality that is effectively identical with all five senses engaged, it just seems like the distinction of what is actually real becomes somewhat hard to pinpoint. Yeah, it might be worth just mentioning briefly here a famous... Uh, philosophical thought experiment, which does um, guide my thinking on this, which is Robert Nozick's experience machine argument. I don't know if you've ever come across that or heard of it. Uh, we talked um, to Sarah Perry about that a little bit, but but please okay. go through this because I'm not as familiar with it as, as you are. It was just this thought experiment he, he puts forward in his famous book, um, Anarchy, State, and Utopia, as a, as a critique of utilitarianism or hedonism. The subjectivist theories of meaning are very closely related to hedonism in some way which is, you know, that it's all about feeling good, ultimately. Now, Nozick says, well, imagine if somebody gave you the choice of staying in the real world and acting out your life in the real world and plugging into something like the Matrix, where you live an incredibly uh, pleasurable life. Would you choose to plug into the experience machine? And his intuition seemed to be that most people wouldn't plug into the experience machine, which to him suggests that there's more to value and meaning and what's worthwhile than just feeling good, because we, we think it must be real in some way. Now, I mean, this thought experiment has been debated endlessly in the intervening 30 or 40 years since he wrote that. Uh, but there have been some interesting results in experimental philosophy, where experimenters you know, pose lots of different variations on a thought experiment to people to see what, how they feel about it. And there's a guy called Philip or Philippe uh, de Brigard, who did a study back in 2010, which tested, I think, four different variations on the, the experience machine thought experiment. One was where the, re- the virtual world was a perfect facsimile or replication of the real world. Um, one is where the virtual world was much better in terms of its experiences of the, uh, the, the subjective experiences of the individuals in that world. The third possibility is where the virtual world was much safer than the real world. So you had less risk of you know, death and things like that. And the fourth version then was a, a, an inversion of the original thought experiment where suddenly somebody came to you one day and said, you've been living in a matrix all these years and you now have the option of plugging out of the matrix. So he tested people's responses to this, these different variations of the thought experiment. I won't go through the results on all of them, but the interesting one is about escaping the matrix, the inversion of the thought experiment. It found that actually the majority of people would prefer not to plug out in that case. So they, they like to stick with the reality that they have. I guess it becomes questionable then, what is reality if, right. if everything that you've experienced up to this point in your life has been in a virtual world like the Matrix? Well, that's as real to you as anything could be. And this other world will seem maybe unreal or abnormal. And people have a natural status quo bias that they might stick with the reality that they have. So the suggestion here is that actually the intuition underlying 
Nozick's original thought experiment that we wouldn't want to plug into the experience machine may not be as robust as we thought, that it may just be indicative of a, a status quo bias. That sounds like a strong critique to me that I would agree with. Because, yeah, that would be my feeling is that you're anchoring to whatever reality you've spent the most time in. And that's, to you, what reality is. I don't know how you could step outside both your reality and the virtual reality to some third location and look at it objectively and determine, well, this is the one that's more real than the other. That's not like a perspective that it's possible to even take. So it seems like reality maybe almost by definition is the thing that you have been in the longest and accepted as your starting point. Right. And this might support your position that this, wor- this future world of games, of inconsequential games, might be the one that's kind of incredibly fulfilling and meaningful. As soon as we're, once we're in that reality, we'll like it and we'll find it rewarding and fulfilling. Uh, it's only you know, people like me, let's say, who are too tied to a very traditionalist conception of what makes for a good life. A good life is one that makes the world a better place, makes some kind of great discovery and knowledge or, or produces some great work of art. I'm, I'm tied to that conception of meaning. I, I still find that intuitively appealing and that a life is meaningful if it contributes to those goods. But maybe that's just because I'm, I'm biased by the current reality. In the future reality, um, I will have a different perspective on what makes life meaningful and worthwhile. Well, I, you raised art, actually, which I think is worth talking about as well, right? I mean, because another possible source of meaning in the future is aesthetics and beauty, uh, and, mm-hmm. the, and the creation of that. And I think that's different than, you know, overcoming unnecessary obstacles. It's it's a different route that people might take. I think that that one also comes under attack from machines because there's no reason machines can't be creative and make art. And it's possible they may make better art than we can make. Yeah, or games too. I mean, Well, like- they can make better games, but they can't necessarily play the game for you. Only no. you can play the game. And that's why... Right. Well, they can't appreciate the art for you either. I mean, they can't sit there and get it for you. You That's true. You have to do that. (laughs) So art appreciation. That's still a subjective thing that requires a consciousness to achieve. Yeah, I mean, you get there into like very deep conversations about what makes uh, a work of art truly a work of art. You know, why is it that we want to travel to Paris, to the Louvre, to look at the original version of the Mona Lisa when we have thousands of perfect replications of it? Do we get just as much aesthetic value from uh, looking at the the replicas of it, or do we get more by going to the original the original painting in Paris? Some people say that the value of the artwork is not just about its aesthetics, its appearance. It's about there's a whole story underlying it, a story of creation and human endeavor that underlies it. And maybe you could argue that if machines take over art and aesthetic realms, that it's somehow it's not doesn't have the same level of value or significance as human-produced art. I, I mean, I wouldn't necessarily be a fan of that type of argument. That, that could be a view. Well, no, I mean, I definitely agree that a lot of art obtains its value from the fact that a human made it, a human that lived a life and had experiences that are somehow resonate with yours. And so that type of art, almost by definition, a machine can't really make. I guess if we assume, though, a future utopia where everybody's well off, there may be less of that sort of art being made. I mean, a lot of people feel that that kind of art comes from, you know, sort of human struggle and problems that we share as human beings together and that art sort of reflects and and discusses those. And if we don't have as many problems anymore, then you would maybe worry that some of that art isn't as resonant. That's such a hard question to answer. I don't know. Like it may be that 
if if we think the production of art is is deeply tied to its origin in human behavior and human struggle or human creativity, it might be that that's a that's an, a, a feasible realm for meaning and fulfillment in the future. Even if machines can produce art and can produce music, we just won't find that as valuable as music and art that's produced by human beings. And again, that could be a realm in which in the non-work or post-work future, we can continue to exercise our, our creativity. Yeah, I'm not as sure about that one as I am about games, but I think that that's another area. And you put those two things together and that starts to feel like a relatively meaningful existence. To me, anyways, you know, where you're both uh, have these incredibly challenging but sort of inconsequential obstacles that you're choosing to overcome. And then you also have the creation and appreciation of, of beauty that's appreciated because it was made by a sentient being specifically. Yeah, I, I, mean, I mean, how do you feel about the example of, let's say, chess? Okay, so computers are already better than humans at chess. Um, is there some value to purely human chess, like uh, chess that's played between two human competitors, even though we already live in a world in which our computers are better than us at doing it? Uh, to me, to me, it seems like there is still some value. It's a game, I guess. I, I, I tend to lump what you call games in with the general aesthetic realm for a number of reasons. But anyway, that, that's besides the point. Um, yeah, it's just the question of is, is chess still valuable activity? Is it something that we can derive meaning from, even if it's the case that computers can do it better than we do? Yeah, because if you want to get good at chess, you are going to have to engage in this challenging activity. Uh, that is a lot like work, right? I'm not calling it work because we sort of defined work differently at the beginning of the podcast, but I think that it resembles work in a lot of ways. Uh, it's effortful and it's challenging. Exactly. Yeah. And what makes it a game is the fact that you're doing it because it's intrinsically rewarding to you to overcome that challenge that you don't need to overcome. So in a way, the fact that a machine has already overcome that challenge is totally irrelevant. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that's the way I feel about games of that sort, too. And again, that seems to me to be a reason to welcome technological unemployment because we'll have the opportunity to pursue these kinds of things. We won't be wedded to other, less, like, more degrading forms of, of work. We're, we're free to engage in those realms. But it seems like it might be, we may have a narrower field of choices. We, narrow in what sense, sorry? Um, sorry, um, again, if, if we return to my... <laughs> original framework that there are these three main sources of meaning in life, the good, the true, and the beautiful. And if we lump, if we put in the beautiful, the aesthetic realm, you know, producing art and also playing games, it seems like we're left with that, you know, in, in the future, whereas machines and computers are, will have taken over yeah, the, the other the, two realms. The vast majority of good and true uh, discovery. I think that yeah. sounds about right. I mean, if we uh, extrapolate the technological vision that we talk about a lot on this podcast, you can see machines doing a tremendous amount of providing people with what they need and tremendous amount of making new scientific discoveries, maybe not a hundred percent of it. Right, right, right. Uh, maybe not a hundred percent of it, but a considerable amount of it, which may potentially leave uh, humankind to pursue beauty uh, in its many forms sort of exclusively. But again, that does not strike me as a bad outcome as long as people are I think it has a lot to do with culture. I think, it, I mean, when we talk about work conferring dignity, I think that's 100% culturally determined. It's because our culture has decided to confer dignity on those who work. It's not, I think the causality is not going the other way at all. 
So if we decide to confer dignity on those who appreciate and create beauty as a culture, then I think we have no problem. It's, it's a little hard to imagine us getting there from here, though, uh, since we are so deeply ingrained in this other set of values. Yeah, I mean, in the case of work, if you're very wedded to the work ethic, even in a world of abundance in which machines can produce all the things we need, if you're, if you're still connected to work, then it's just because you attach a purely symbolic meaning to work. And it, most meanings of symbols are, are culturally determined and can be changed. They can be changed, but they're often very hard to change for the individual, right? I mean, this is sort of the, this is the journey we try to take our character on in the, in the project we've been working on is he's been dealing with this, that he values work and has a strong work ethic and finds that he does not really have any place to apply that that makes sense in his world. Yeah, and I think that's going to be true for a lot of people, and it's why you get such resistance and concern about technological unemployment. Yeah, I think it's going to be very applicable to individual people. Yeah. But I'm not sure that that applies categorically. So what you, what you need to do is you need to convince the person that the, the post-work future is the better one, which is what we're discussing here, which is within this opportunity cost argument, is the life more meaningful and fulfilling? And we've reached this position where well, what what will provide meaning and fulfillment in that world is this aesthetic realm, which includes games and maybe and works of art. And is that is that sufficiently powerful to make the post work world seem valuable and and consequently that it's worth trying to erode this symbolic meaning or significance that's attached to the work ethic? Well, I think that games capture most of what people like about work, except for the quote unquote realness of it right because the consequential yeah it has the challenge right it it uh it eases boredom it gives you a goal to strive for and it can i think confer dignity i think that's a culturally determined thing but you know we give great respect to good players of games uh in our society already i mean to to athletes uh to chess champions and so on so there is some precedent for that. It's not like that's completely outside of the culture. No, it's true. And it, it might be the case that we're actually assigning more and more value to that kind of enterprise as time goes on. Because if you think about it, the, the modern professional sports, they're typically only about a century old or maybe a century and a half old. In like, you know, football and uh, so American football and football in English kind, they really emerge in the late the mid to late 1800s as a, the rise of the recreational movement, which was also tied to features of, of capitalism and at, at that particular moment in time. So it could be that we, we will embrace the value of games more and more as time goes on. It seems intuitively true to me that we are doing that. I don't, I don't have a you know, strong empirical support for it. Well, you know, certainly there is a games industry that exists now that did not exist in the past. I, as far as whether people play more games or, or have higher respect for games, it's hard to say because games are so old. But just as, as a guess, I, I feel like you might be right. It does feel like that might be the trend we're seeing. Um, yeah, it's, it's something that's like valorized within society as well, um, maybe more than it was historically. I'm not, again, I'm not sure empirically if that's true, but it feels like it's true to me. Like that we make our athletes out to be more heroic than we maybe once did. Yeah, uh, this is an interesting thesis of this guy, I can't remember his name, something McAfee, not Andrew McAfee, no, um, who wrote a book about sports and virtues in sport and how, like historically it was all tied to, uh, it's kind of a safe way to act out heroic virtues instead of on the ba- battlefield. 
But there were still within cultures that very much valued heroism on the battlefield, like ancient Greek cultures, for example. But you know, over time, we were trying to find more and more safe spaces in which to exercise and develop these character virtues. And we increasingly don't want people to be involved in the kind of real world dangers, the, the, the real battles that are consequential. We, we want machines to take over that more and more. Um, but we still want to cultivate these kind of heroic virtues and games give us a space in which to do that. And we, we'll, we will, maybe we'll be comfortable and happy to do that more and more in the future, to have these spaces in which we can engage in effortful, virtuous activities, but they don't have any deeper consequence for society, for ourselves and for society. Well, and if that thesis were true, that would provide support for the general idea that as we overcome scarcity and war and move towards more abundance, that we have to take these same sort of drives that we have to, you know, triumph over obstacles and compete with each other and sort of transform them increasingly into other areas, such as games. So that's interesting. I Sort of maybe as we move towards the end of the podcast, I want to talk about the fact that I feel like the world we're describing, right, one where uh, maybe we exist in virtual reality and we try to find the meaning that we can from from beauty and from from game playing kind of sits in the middle of a spectrum, right? I mean, because there's there's another end, right, which is like the completely subjectivist, hedonist end, right, which is just the wireheading direction, Mm-hmm. where we're not even bothering to play games or appreciate beauty because we're essentially just hijacking our pleasure centers directly and to all external uh, viewpoints. It looks like we're just sitting there. We're not actually engaging with the world at all. And I, I, to me, that I, I would agree with many people in finding that outcome not optimal uh, and kind of horrifying. I don't, I don't know if you feel that I guess that it way. depends on what it's like. Um, if it's just your, it's some sort of pure state of bliss with no real content then then it is different you can differentiate it from what we're imagining here about the game playing future but if it's if it's something like Nozick's experience machine where you're just tapping into a very rich and rewarding kind of virtual existence then I'm not sure how, how different it, different it is I guess it depends on what what the phenomenological content of um, wireheading is right I guess I'm imagining yes pure bliss as your phenomenological experience versus a more varied experience that includes interactions with other beings and games and art and so on. So I guess I'm imagining a more textured experience as being preferable to one that's just a wash of bliss and nothing else. But maybe that's not a, maybe that distinction isn't as big a deal as I feel that it is. But one of those, the one with more texture and art and games feels more meaningful to me relatively. Yeah, I mean that seems right to me. Um, however, I guess I am slightly more wedded to the idea that there there should be some objective significance to what you're doing than than you are. Right. So so it's easier for me to draw that that line, but maybe harder for you to draw that distinction between the two well, two I, types. Well, I guess I'm I'm imagining that there is an axis here, right? And so yeah. to to the the far extreme end, you have the wire heading, and then say to the right of that, you have. Uh, the sort of virtual game-playing holiday art future. And then I'm imagining maybe further to the right of that, you have something where you do engage more with the quote-unquote real world, and there is more of a dynamic society that we are influencing and changing, and we're a part of the larger universe and so on. And it seems like this is something that you get to in the end of your paper, this idea of integrating with our technology, right? Because kind of the assumption that's been baked into this conversation the whole time is that machines are going to take away 
all of the tasks and that we're going to be sort of sidelined. But of course, if we merge with the machines, as many people uh, in the transhumanist community propose that we should do, then maybe that assumption is false. Yeah. So if we just backtrack, because this conversation is, has developed in a way that we've we've kind of embraced this notion of the, the games playing and aesthetic future where what we do doesn't have any deep objective significance. It's just, it's a rewarding and challenging set of experiences, textured and varied and everything like that. If there are some people out there who are still concerned that our actions have to have some kind of objective significance and meaning beyond those kind of games playing realms, then you probably should be concerned about the relationship we're having with technology uh, and the kinds of technologies that will inaugurate technological unemployment. Because it seems to me that these technologies represent uh, the apotheosis of a particular trend in technology, which is the externalization of technology from us. So, you know, classically, when we built the first hand axes, the technology was a tool that we used and manipulated to achieve ends for ourselves. But with automating technologies, the tools become ever more external from us and our influence. They they work by themselves without need for our manipulation and input. And because they are externalized from us, they sever a link, maybe a necessary link between what we do and the objectively valuable ends that make our lives meaningful. So if you're worried about that severing of that link, it seems to me like you should favor an increasingly integrationist relationship with technology, that we become more cyborg-like, that we don't uh, race against the machine, uh, but we race with the machine. We become we become part of the technological infrastructure that we're building. Right, and and this is of course a, a hard line to draw. What does it mean to integrate with technology versus just to wield an external tool? And of course, you talk about the extended mind thesis, right, which takes a particular view on this. The extended mind thesis, which is you know this idea from philosophy of mind that we are already natural born cyborgs because we. We already integrate with our technology. Like your smartphone is an external memory store or, and uh, it helps you with a variety of cognitive tasks. A calculator is part of your mind because it helps you to perform mathematical tasks and things like that. It's not truly external from you. It's part of a, a mind, an extended mind loop between your biological body and the technological artifacts that you wield. So I, what do you mean by integration? I guess well, I'm imagining things that are actually integrated into your biology in some way, like nanotech in the brain or your brain prosthetics, things like that. But proponents of the extended mind thesis might resist that and say, well, we don't need that because we're already integrated with technology in a, in a sufficient manner. So I, I agree with you. And I think being skeptical of the extended mind thesis, is that your position? Uh, yeah. I mean, there are a couple of reasons to be skeptical of it. I set these out uh, on my blog. If people are interested, I have a very long post about uh, neuroenhancement and the extended mind. Uh, but the, the concern would be that, um, number one, it, it's a controversial thesis. Uh, number two, it seems that there are differences between um, memory that is purely internal to the brain. It's, you know, it's dynamically integrated with how you perceive and interact with the world in a way that an external memory storage device isn't. So there seems to be these phenomenological differences. And again, if mm-hmm. we care about the phenomenological character of our, our in- interaction with the world, this extended minds thesis doesn't seem like it's sufficient for the kind of link we need between subjectivity and objectivity. I, I completely agree with that. It just seems like there's too much of a gulf between what it feels like to know an answer versus what it feels like to say 
look up an answer. Um, even if you look it up instantaneously and it immediately appears in your field of vision via augmented reality glasses, even if that's a very tight loop, it still feels like it's different to actually access that information in your own head. So would truly integrationist technology that we actually have now, would that be something like drugs perhaps? Because we don't obviously have nanotech that can go into your brain. Our use of brain computer interfaces is very limited today. Uh, so would the closest thing that we have be, you know, mind-altering substances? Yeah, I, ironically enough, it probably would be some, some kind of maybe cognitive-enhancing drugs might be the closest we have today. I don't think we have anything today that is probably sufficient or that is improving at a speed which will match the speed at which externalized technologies are improving. But just as like a sort of a proof of concept or an, of an example of the fact that, you know, we can in fact integrate with technology. Yeah, pharmacological enhancements would be one example. And the primitive forms of brain-computer interface that we have now are also, I guess, a proof of concept here as well, because they, they illustrate a way in which we can integrate. Like, maybe not, um, depends what you're thinking of, but maybe examples like uh, artificial retina or um, artificial... Uh, audio, sorry, cochlear implants. That's what I'm thinking of, yeah. Things that um, are more like neuroprostheses rather than brain-computer interfaces. Yeah, neuroprostheses, yeah. They are uh, an initial proof of concept as well, but they're a long way from being at the level that they would need to be. Right, and there's some interesting re research into, say, you know, implanting you know chips in the hippocampus of mice and so on. I'm not super well versed in this, but you know there is experiments in terms of actually using technology to enhance memory inside the brain, and and you know this hasn't been tried on humans, so no one knows exactly what this would feel like. But one might imagine that would feel more like the technology is a part of you. So so let's assume that it's possible to integrate with our technology, and let's assume that this is maybe not the technology that has the most forward velocity right now. It does seem like. Our external tech is getting a lot faster than our than our integrationist tech. You favor, I think, at least weekly in your paper, the idea of integrating with uh, machines. So then that might imply that we should work harder at the type of technology, brain-computer interfaces, mind-altering drugs, and so on, things that would allow us to enter a future where we're the equals of the machines and not uh, sidelined by them. Yeah, I, I would have a weak preference for that kind of model of the relationship with technology. And I think this is, it's certainly not something that's going to be easy and it has a lot of risks attached to it too. Once you're integrating technology with biology, there's a lot of engineering and design problems that arise that wouldn't arise in, in the pure externalization case. But I think, it, again, if we care about this link between our experiences and what we do and results in the objective world, then that's the route that we should go down and that we should prioritize. And it might be a way, again, of sustaining meaning and value in a post-work future. Right. And I think, you know, in our thought experiment about like a completely post-scarcity future, I think it's important to recognize, too, that that outcome is probably pretty unlikely that we're still going to need to safeguard our existence as a species in, in one way or another. So there will be at least some important uh, consequential tasks to do. I guess the question is whether or not those tasks will be handled by uh, very few of us, or whether people at large can participate in that. But assuming that we can somehow get into a completely static, steady utopia might be just, that might be an impossibility. Yeah, that, that sounds right to me. It sounds like that with, with all these things, when you imagine extreme future possibilities, uh, there's a danger that you don't realize the, or think deeply about the various steps along the road to that anyway. 
and the kind of lives that people are living at those steps along that road as well. So I think that also ties to your, the point you're making. Even if it's not even a practical reality, let's say it was a practical reality, we would still have to get there somehow, and we should think about the kinds of lives that people lead as we get there. Okay, well, this has been a uh, pretty freewheeling and, and fascinating conversation. W- what's the current state of this uh, paper? Will you be publishing this soon? Or are you still going to be working on it for a while? I'm going to submit it for publication somewhere pretty soon, but who knows how long that'll take Academic publishing is very slow. For people who are listeners to the podcast, I have a series on my own blog called um, Technological Unemployment and the Value of Work, which goes through a lot of the details of this argument. I've covered most of the parts before on my blog. Well, and uh, your blog is just full of incredibly interesting articles on all of these topics. I don't know where you find the time to write as much as you do, but uh, maybe that's a good note to end on. Uh, Thanks, John, for being back on the show. Um, I'm sure we'll have you for a third time eventually. Thanks. It was great to talk to you as well. Uh, thanks as well, John. It's been, uh, it's been a pleasure. Okay, everybody. So that's our episode. Thanks for bearing with us during the hiatus. It was a little bit longer than we had planned, but now we're back. Things might still be a little spotty while we get through the holidays, but in the new year, we should be back on our regular biweekly schedule. Quick note, you might have noticed that in this last episode, uh, at some point, Ted just kind of vanishes. He, while we were recording this, had to leave for work all of a sudden, you know, because he has like a regular job and stuff. He's still uh, in the world of work. Um, So that's why he vanished, in case anybody was curious about that. Anyways, I'll see you guys with the next episode, hopefully in about two weeks time um, or close to. And in the meantime, thanks for listening and goodbye. Leave a comment on this episode, please visit reviewthefuture.com. You can also send emails to feedback at reviewthefuture.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>